Good morning. I was up in the front, not paying attention, and then I turned around, I was like, whoa, where'd everyone come from? That was great. <laughs> uh, I am a little under the weather today. I'm not exactly sure what it is. I wash my hands a lot, so if I shook your hand, don't be freaked out. Uh, but I, uh, yeah, just this morning, not a ton of energy. So uh, bear with me, because I have a two-hour sermon that I need to do in about 40 minutes. Thank you for joining us as we jump back into this series called In Jesus' Name, Amen. As we're going through the book of John, we picked up last month after a six-month hiatus, which was ironic considering from John chapter 6 going into John chapter 7, it was also a six-month hiatus of John not writing down things that happened in that time period. I want to give you guys a disclaimer today. We're going to teach the Bible. That's not the disclaimer. That's every week. But the Bible's probably going to offend us today more than normal. The confessions that come from these passages are going to make some of us question what we really believe. And if we really want to be all in for Jesus, especially here at COV. So, as we've heard before, when we open the Bible, we'd really rather offend you than God. We'd much rather say what this says, even when it's the hard stuff. Sorry, not sorry. When we study a book of the Bible, we want to cover the tone. We want to cover the emphasis, context, and purpose of what is being written so that it will make us, <clears throat> so that will make us have to jump on some theological landmines, if you will. But again, we aren't here to entertain or tickle ears, but to honestly portray what the scripture says. So here we go. We're picking up where we left off last week in John chapter 7, where Jesus was having a conversation with his brothers about going to the Feast of Tabernacles and going there to make himself more known, more public, if you will. More people would know who he was. Jesus has just got done telling his brothers he does not plan to go in a public way because his time has not come and there is this group of Pharisees that are very interested in cornering Jesus and having Jesus killed for insurrection and for blasphemy. Jesus did go. He didn't lie to his brothers. He essentially said to them, I'm not going with you. I'm not going the way you want to go at the beginning, but in a much more quiet way. And he went to the Festival of Tabernacles where Jesus seemed to be the topic of many people's conversations as they whispered behind people's backs about Jesus. So here we go, verse 14. It says, not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. There are some conflicting reasons behind why Jesus waited until the middle of the festival to go teach in the temple courts. Some think it was because he didn't want to have a premature triumphal entry, if you will, like we celebrated just a couple weeks ago on Palm Sunday. As if Jesus coming to the beginning of the festival would stir up crowds and create a premature crucifixion. Others think that he came in the middle of the festival to have a larger crowd because some may have been late to the festival and others believe that he came in the middle to have a lesser of a crowd because some left early. See, it's these conflicting arguments to why he came in the middle and it's not really clear. But I'd presume the last example as it was not going to be the largest crowd, but it would probably be the most faithful crowd that were there in the middle. 
It was customary for a rabbi in a context like this to teach in the temple courts during these festivals, so this was not as out of place as, say, maybe a street preacher on the corner today. Rabbis would teach from the Torah. It's the first five books of the Old Testament. And crowds would stand and listen to the teachings, but the rabbis would spend most of their time not actually teaching from the authority of the scriptures as much as they would just quote other rabbis as if to use their interpretation of someone else's interpretation as the consensus to validate what they were saying and what they had to say had some type of substance because they could quote other rabbis. Rabbis weren't working from an authority in that sense. They were working from an interpretation of an interpretation. And consensus, I need you to hear, doesn't supersede God's word. Just because a lot of people believe one thing doesn't necessarily make it true. So we must go back to the source. If we're going to study the word of God, church, we must go back to the source, the word. But how we interpret what the word says makes all the difference in the world. Because, man, there are some pretty bad interpretations out there. We read without context. We get the word to say whatever we want it to say. I can admit that there are things in this book this Bible, this 66 letters written by one author via the Holy Spirit through a bunch of valuable, messed up people, I can tell you that there's some things in this that I'm not that stoked on. Can I be honest about that? Because instead of believing God created me in his image, what I really want to do is create God in my own image. And when I read the scriptures, he starts to upset me because I have an expectation of how God ought to be. But I have to believe that God's word is more of an authority than culture. Because culture changes every week. But Jesus doesn't. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 13, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. I could give you a laundry list of strange teachings, but I won't. But as your pastor, assuming you've opted in... <laughs> I need to caution you. What we intake spiritually affects how we live, worship, and view God, both positively and negatively. So what we read, who we listen to on podcasts, and what we watch on YouTube can directly affect our understanding of God's character. Here's why it matters. Because if you have a mistaken understanding of who God is, your worship of God is in vain. That doesn't sound that nice. But the truth is, if your understanding of God is incorrect, you have a misplaced and placebo worship. Muslims, Mormons, and many, many other religions and cults, if I'm honest, are sincere in their belief, but based on what Jesus says in his love letter to his creation, they may be sincere, but he believes they're sincerely wrong. Verse 15 says, the Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? The festival goers were amazed. They were struck by the fact that Jesus spoke with such authority without referencing any other rabbis like all the other rabbis would do. But Jesus also didn't have the pedigree that all the other respected rabbis had. They, a rabbi would have Talmuds, and before they had Talmuds, they were a Talmud. They were a student of a rabbi. 
who had learned in what was known as a yeshiva. And a yeshiva loosely could be looked at as similar to a seminary in the Christian context today. And these Talmids, these students, they would memorize the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, and depending on how well these young Jewish men excelled at their memorization and comprehension of the Torah, they would be invited to follow a rabbi until they were equipped to become a rabbi themselves. Now, let's be clear. Jesus had no problem memorizing the first five books of the Old Testament, all right? Any of it. In fact, he knows all of it. You know why? Because it's about him, it's for him, it's through him. It is him. He is the word, the logos, the truth. Back decades ago when we started John, in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So the word, the truth, the logos, was now speaking to these Jews at the festival about God. And the way in which he spoke, the authority in which he spoke with, was unlike anything they had ever heard before. And it was from a man who had not been educated like the rest of the rabbis and teachers of the law. It's interesting that Jesus essentially passed on this tradition as he invested in his students, his followers that were not the, t the pick of the litter, if you will, that he would, did not choose the young men that had memorized the first five books, comprehended the first five books. He picked men who were willing to die. He knew that about them, even though they didn't know that about themselves, and they were willing to follow Jesus. And Jesus passed on this tradition to his disciples in Acts chapter 4, John and Peter had just healed a paralyzed man who had been noticed by the religious leaders of the day, and there was a council, and they had noticed that this man had been healed because he had been begging for quite some time on his mat, and all of a sudden, he asked Peter and John for gold, and Peter looked right at him and said, gold I do not have, but in the name of Jesus Christ, walk. And he got up, and he picked up his mat, and he started to walk, and it started to create this commotion around Jerusalem. Peter, dominated by the Holy Spirit, started to proclaim all that Jesus had done. He had started to explain the gospel, and this man had been changed by it. And then in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, after this council had seen this man walking around and had met Peter and John and asked them to talk to them, here's what it says. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Emphasis, mine, and the Bibles. Peter and John were not solid students. They had not memorized the Torah and comprehended it well. They did not do the things the way the world would assume that they had to in order to have the authority that they had possessed in the name of Jesus, but these religious leaders took note that they were ordinary, that nothing was extraordinary about them. They were unschooled, they were uneducated men who had been with Jesus. And this Jesus had rubbed off on them, who had had Jesus personally disciple and invest in them. Okay, I need to confess something that will probably lower our numbers. Okay, you ready? Who's ready? All right. <clears throat> we're not in the beginning of the festival anymore. The honeymoon's worn off, at least for me, at this church. Many have come and gone at COV because we may not be what 
people would expect in a church. But I have to tell you something that I know not everyone knows. And depending on how you view Christianity and how it's supposed to work, if you will, I'm going to give you something that will absolutely give you reason to discount me as one of your pastors. I'm not perfect. Crazy, right? I'm not qualified by the religious world's standards to lead God's church. I'm not saying I'm not, I'm not just saying that I'm sinful, which I am. I'm not saying that I'm young, which I guess in some spheres I can still claim, praise God. But not only those obvious things, I didn't go to Bible college. I didn't go to seminary. I didn't do it the way that everyone else had done it. I didn't do it the way most of my peers did what they did to, in order to lead a church. And honestly, I think, especially in my 20s, I had significantly too much pride because I wanted to do it a different way. I wanted to be able to say I did it a different way. I also didn't want to spend the tens of thousands of dollars that it cost to go to seminary, plus sit in classrooms and write papers and take tests. <laughs> I didn't do any of that. I'm a college dropout, Kanye West style. I am unschooled, or as a mentor of mine once said to me, I'm not so unschooled as I'm undiplomaed. I'm an ordinary man with an extraordinary Lord, who by God's grace I know personally and experientially. I don't get to flex my doctorate or my PhD. I don't get to be called doctor. And I get to tell you, though, that I spend time with Jesus on the regular, in his word, in prayer, in the sanctifying work of being his child as he grows me into this role of the pastor of this group of people for the glory of his name. I, I used to be afraid to share that, if I'm honest. In fact, this is probably the first time ever I've shared that in front of a group of people, ever. It's not that I hit it, it's just people just assume stuff because I can say seminary words. <laughs> and in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, I can control the narrative and answer questions and talk with you, so I don't know how everyone's going to receive that. I don't know how everyone's going to hear, well, he didn't do what other people do, so maybe he doesn't know what other people know. I'll tell you this, I know Jesus. I know him personally. If learning the Bible from a person who didn't go to an educational institution like most churches have gives you an excuse to not hear God's word from me, I'd encourage you to go somewhere where you can grow. Because that is the goal. And we don't want to be an excuse for you not to do so. When I was hired, there was a search team, and that search team knew this. They knew my resume. They knew I didn't go to school. We had long conversations about this. The church plant that merged with this church was a bunch of people that knew about this. But this church has grown, and people keep coming, and people are new, and some of them stick. And so I don't know what you know, and so I felt like I just had to put that out there. I just want to be honest about that in the hopes that you would understand that God can use anyone for the glory of his name. No one preaches from the authority of their degree, hear me. We preach through the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we have received Christ, then the Spirit of God indwells in us. All right, no one got up. Verse 16. 
Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. The word of God is powerful. It's authoritative, much more wise regarding a worldview than CNN or Fox News. Not that you're Fox News and you're CNN, sorry. But we must be reverent of what God says in his word. For some of us, we treat the Bible without care. We use it to make us feel better. We use it when we have to, to get it to say what we want it to say. We treat it as a magic eight ball or as a Ouija board. We want it to answer specific questions without being willing to look at it as the source of the explanation of God's character. Do not treat the Bible like a magic eight ball. In a figurative sense, it's more of a loaded handgun, which must be handled with extreme care because if mishandled, it is extremely dangerous spiritually and yet extremely powerful to grow us spiritually if interpreted correctly and put into practice. Verse 17. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own, Jesus says. Do you want to do the will of God? Like, for some reason, this week, when I wrote down that question, that question was so revolutionary to me. But the idea of doing the will of God, to listen to him as the authority, to love God and to love others, to exercise your love for God by loving others, that was revolutionary to me. I've known this, but that question, do I want to do the will of God, it changed the trajectory of my week. Do I want to love people? Not just the people that act the way I want them to act, but people, all people, even the people that frustrate me. The EGRs, you know what that stands for? Extra grace required. The heavenly sandpaper, that's what we call some people. This is God's will. Do we want to do the will of God? Ultimately, do we want to please God or do we want to appease a God that's far off? Hebrews 11:6 6 says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. How powerful is that? Pleasing God does not come from your begrudging submission, but through your faith exercised through loving obedience to God. So are you willing to live by faith and please him? Verse 17, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak in my, on my own. And in order to do the will of God, you obey the words of God because of love rather than obligation. Jesus says that those who exercise faith, those who do what God says for the right reasons, they know that his words are not his own from the Father, that they are from the Father. See, rabbis would quote other rabbis with the intention to piggyback upon other teachers' authority. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't have to. He didn't quote any other rabbis, which was scandalous because when he was saying what he was saying, he was saying that that authority came directly from God, his Father. And which Jesus continues to explain, rather than speaking for himself and being confirmed by what other rabbis says, 
He says that his words come directly from God. Verse 18, whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. As pastors and teachers, we speak about things of God. What we must look for is, who is the hero in the sermon? Who is it that you, as you're listening to the word of God be taught, who is it that you want to be more like? The truth of the scriptures is what changes us. When we don't just read or hear it, but we yearn to obey and actually do what he says. If we teach human wisdom rather than God's living and active word, we castrate the truth that is at our disposal. So please forgive me if you've ever heard me teach something that makes me look like I'm the point. I believe I am much more aware of the fact that I have a ton of pride and I know that more today than I've ever known in the past. But I confess, I apologize to you for that with the hope that you understand that as one of your teachers, one of your pastors, I am not perfect. I have the exact same temptations that everyone has, but know that my responsibility as I open this is to point you to him. So you can know him and you can grow in him. I don't want to teach you from my own authority, but the one who rescued, redeemed, and is refining me to look more like himself. Jesus sought to bring glory to God and as God. To God, Jesus came to bring glory. The faithful and perfect son did not come to be served, but he came to serve as an example for man and woman of what a perfect servant of God's looks like. But more importantly, as the substitutionary surrogate for those who would trust and follow him. That's what Jesus is. Glory, God's godness, if you will, is on display when his people obey him. It's his lordship and power being put on display for a world who is disobedient to the commands of God. So Jesus brings glory to God the Father through his obedience, but Jesus also brings glory to God as God. Jesus is God with skin. If you want a definition, there it is. Jesus is God with skin, and some of the most beautiful words about Jesus' glory and about his godness are written in Colossians chapter 1 by the Apostle Paul through the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's what it says about Jesus in Colossians 1 verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God. The Son is the Instagram post of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the senior pastor. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. An entire year's worth of preaching could be done from that one verse. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You want to know why we make it about Jesus? Because of that. 
It's all about him. Jesus has always been, will always be. He is the beginning, he is the son, and he and the father are one. Didn't mean for that to rhyme. I have uh, four wonderful children most of the time. And my uh, youngest daughter, who probably doesn't get as much play in my sermons, uh, my youngest daughter, Evie, or Evangeline, uh, is in second grade. And she was having a group project, and there were two other classmates in her class with her that were going to have to do this project together. And the teacher is actually a, a family friend. And, and uh, Evie and her two friends, they had to do a report on heroes. And they were given different heroes. Well, Evie and her group got Jesus. Public school, by the way. What's up? And Evie and her two friends got Jesus, and they were starting to talk, and they were supposed to Google, I'm assuming, or Wikipedia or something, find out certain things about their hero. One of the things on the list was it had to say when they were born and when they died. <laughs> and so as they're talking about it, Evie is talking with her friends, and they were like, well, you... Evie goes, I know Jesus. And they're like, you, you know Jesus? You know yeah, I know Jesus. Oh, okay. Well, when, when was he born? Well, he's always been. <laughs> and they were like, excuse me? Well, no, he's always been. Yeah, but when was he born? He's he, always And so the friends of Evie were kind of going, uh, oh, okay, well, when did he die? Well, he's alive. <laughs> yeah, that's my girl. And so, so the two, two friends of Evie's go to, to Kathy, the teacher, and, and they're talking to her, and, and they say, uh, so Evie says that he's always been. And Kathy has a faith, and she's like, oh, Oh, uh, okay, well, uh, Evie, when was Jesus born to Mary? And she's like, oh, well, in like zero or three AD, like, you know, the calendar. Yeah, that's right, that's right. When did he die? Well, like 30 years later. Yeah, that's right, okay. So they figured it out, but then Evie goes home, and she's talking to her mom, and she goes, but mom, I was right, right? <laughs> yes, dear, you were right. My seven-year-old knows that Jesus has always been. My seven-year-old knows that Jesus will always be. It's all about him. Verse 18, whoever speaks on their own authority does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. I have to admit that much of what I have done and still do comes with a hint of glory being wanted for myself. I want to say that that's totally gone, but I know it'll probably never be fully eradicated while I'm in this earthly vessel. We strive to not come in our own authority, but for the glory of God. In our community group this last week, uh, I don't think she ever texts back, but I'm going to use her name anyway. Uh, in our community group this last week, uh, it just started on Thursday nights. There was a really great takeaway that many of us had after discussing this specific passage, and Karen Miller had a realization of a while back that even though if she is successful at getting glory,
because this is the thing that we do. We want glory for ourselves. Even if she was successful for getting glory, even if people started to praise her for what she was like, and someone actually thought that she was wonderful, Mike does, but even if someone else thought she was wonderful for the way that she was acting, the problem is that she cannot help anyone like her God can. Only God can forgive someone of their sins. Only God can restore someone. Only God can reconcile someone back to himself and give them his Holy Spirit. So if we're trying to be the Holy Spirit for someone, did you hear me, married people? We can't make someone change like the Spirit of God can. And then we try to get credit because we did it. We got to stop that. Because only God can change someone. So we want people to need us, if we're honest. We want people to want us. But we cannot give to them what they ultimately need, which is a God who is real and has real authority. And so to get glory for ourselves makes no sense. Because even if you got it, you wouldn't want it. Jesus seeks the glory of the Father. And anyone who opens this Bible... Not mine personally, yours too. Anyone who opens the Bible, anyone who disseminates the truth of this book doesn't under the authority of the one who wrote it and is it. Church, I don't want us to worship the pages. But we sure as heck worship the subject matter and the author. The subject matter is about a hero and that hero is not you. You are not the hero, Jesus is. And he wrote this. Our triune God, God's love letter to his creation. Jesus says that those who seek the Father's glory is a man of truth. I don't think this is what we are. I think he was talking about himself because when he says nothing false about him, that's not you. He's testifying about what the Father has said about him. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 through 17, one of the places where the Trinity is in full effect, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Jesus' perfection is on display, not just in the reactions of those he came in contact with, but from God the Father himself. And last week, we talked about what C.S. Lewis's perspective was, was that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or a Lord, the Lord. We must do something with not only who Jesus is, but what Jesus said about himself. Let me break it down a little bit from the Gospels. Jesus said that he had come down from heaven, John 6, verse 38, that he had eternally existed, John 17, 5 and 24, that he had been sent into the world by the Father, John 16, 28. He claimed to be the Savior of the world and the only Savior to the world, John 14, 6. He claimed to be the determiner of everyone's eternal destiny, John 3, verse 36. He claimed to be the source of everlasting life and the only source. He claimed to be the only way to God. He claimed to have the right to be honored and worshiped on an equal basis with the eternal God. He claimed to be the one 
he claimed to be one with the Father. He claimed to have the power to give life and even to raise the dead. He claimed to be able to raise himself from the dead. He claimed to be the one whom the Old Testament scripture spoke and the one who was the main subject of the Old Testament. He claimed to be the supreme judge of all people who would one day judge them all in his return from glory. He claimed to be without sin. He claimed to have authority in heaven and earth. He claimed to be able to forgive sins legitimately, to have both the power and the authority to do so. He claimed to rule over the Sabbath. He claimed to have the right to answer prayer. He claimed to be greater than the temple, greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon, greater than Jacob, greater than Abraham. He claimed to have been alive before Abraham was even born. He claimed to be the only source of eternal life. He claimed to be the light of the world. He claimed to be the resurrection and the life. He claimed to be the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed he had the privilege and one day would enter into that privilege of being seated at the right hand of the Father to reign forever. Amen. That's our Jesus. That's what he said about himself. So what do we do with these claims? See, he made it about himself. And as we said last week, it's impossible to pat Jesus on his head. He's either the devil incarnate as he attempts to mislead people, or he is who he says that he is, God incarnate, but he's nothing in between. He speaks from the authority of the Father, and Jesus is a man of truth. He is the truth, he is the life, he is the way, and there is nothing false about him. False meant unrighteousness. There is nothing unrighteous in him. Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law, he says to the people, yet not one of you keeps the law. <laughs> Why are you trying to kill me? That seems so out of place, doesn't it? Jesus then calls out the hypocrisy of the Jews and the leaders who wanted to attempt to derail Jesus. They couldn't because his actions were perfect, but they attempted to point out things that they just did not understand. Here's the thing. Often you and I are more like the Pharisees than we realize. Did you know that? The ones that want to point fingers and want Jesus to do things a certain way. A pastor in San Diego named Larry Osborne in his book called Accidental Pharisee said it this way, becoming a Pharisee is like going to Denny's. No one plans to end up there, you just do. (laughs) We want Jesus to be the way that we imagine he ought to be. We even argue with scripture when it is explained in a way that goes against our understanding of how we would like our savior, all a cart, probably. That's why looking at scripture is more important than even talking about our opinions. Did you know that? I'm all for wrestling with scripture in a conversation, but we need, no, 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 I'd even say that we have to open the scriptures and read them and apply them if we wanna grow spiritually. Talking about Christian things doesn't cut it. Then Jesus says this really interesting statement. Why are you trying to kill me? (laughs) Jesus knew their intentions. He didn't need them to show themselves off. He knew their hearts. John chapter 2, verse 25. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Jesus knows what you want to do, church. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what your urges are. 
And so he calls this out to the people who were looking for a way to find him guilty in some way. This was not a paranoid schizophrenic question. He knew the hearts of men, and so he questioned them. And what was their response? Verse 20, you are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? This was a very common saying in this era. It essentially means, are you mad? Are you crazy? Are you cray-cray? That's today. Who is trying to kill you? They would not own up to something that they may have intended but hadn't shown publicly that their intentions were yet. You are crazy. You must have a demon. You make such foolish claims, they say. Remember, based on what Jesus has said and claimed about himself, he is either the most misleading and persuasive individual to ever exist, which would be in Satan's character, or he is who he claims to be, which is the Christ, the Lord, God's only son. The only way you can know one way or another is if you believe what he says about himself or not. If you don't, if you don't believe these claims that he has, you are essentially saying he's demon-possessed. But if you say you believe, you're calling him king, which means you ought to bow down to his lordship. Verse 21, Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you all are amazed. Amazed here actually means marvel, and I'm not, no endgame spoilers yet. Better go see it. Amazed here means marvel. It means astonished, more of a startled than in awe. And Jesus is going back just a few months in the narrative, and even in our preaching of John, back in chapter 5, Jesus healed a man who had been paralyzed for quite some time, and Jesus told him to pick up his mat and walk, and guess what? He did. But he did this on the Sabbath, a day that the religious believe you were to do no work. And to have self-control, you were supposed to focus on just worshiping of God, but the Pharisees had taken it too far, as they do. Which is, and they made the Sabbath the point, rather than the God who it was to be reminded of. Verse 22, yet because Moses gave you circumcision, Jesus says, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Jesus is making the point that the old covenant, it was expected to circumcise an infant boy on the eighth day of his life as a mark that that boy was intended to be God's. It was a tradition that in the covenant of Abraham was expected. But when the eighth day fell on the Sabbath, which it did sometimes, it was expected that you would break the Sabbath for this specific work because of the expectation that the eighth day was significant even more than the Sabbath. So Jesus then extends his healing of a paralytic to the fact that even though it was done on the Sabbath, the work of God takes precedence over the Sabbath. Verse 24, Jesus drops the mic. Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Dang. We ought not judge unless... And some people are like, ooh, there's an unless. Yeah, it's like a but. We ought not judge unless we're using scripture in context of a brother or a sister. 
the only time you get to do it. Oh, well, I don't want to be judged. Then you're not a brother or sister. See, the Bible is the standard. And it speaks of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. To judge by what you can see will often lead you in a path that leads to destruction, church. We base our faith not on what we have seen, but what Christ has done, what he has accomplished. I don't need to watch on YouTube the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I know the history. I know the reactions of the disciples. I know that Jesus Christ is as alive today as he was on the third day. Hallelujah. If we base what we believe to be true only on what we see on the outside, we will miss the beauty of what God does from the inside out. Mike texted me something he heard this week, and we couldn't figure out who originally wrote it, so I'll give credit to Mike, sort of. All scripture is one book. That one book is Christ. It's all about him. When we read it, it's not to get you to try to do the law perfectly. You can't. It's to remind you that Christ did the law perfectly so you could know him. To look at a bound book as Christ is a misunderstanding, but to look at what the book describes, it describes a loving and patient God who gives people the diagnosis that death is imminent because of their sin. The antidote is, which is Jesus Christ himself. Because of what he has done, we can have life. So it's been said, don't judge a book by its cover. Well, I wouldn't judge Christ by his readers either. I would judge Christ by the fruit. In Matthew 11, verses 2 through 6, when John the Baptist was in prison, he heard about the deeds of the Messiah. He sent two of his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. John the Baptist's disciples come to ask Jesus if he is the one that the Old Testament said would come, and what does Jesus do? He shows his fruit. What's he do? He quotes the Old Testament. He quotes the prophet Isaiah, where he said that the blind would receive sight, the lame could walk, and the deaf would hear. This is not a response, hear me, that says how into healing Jesus was. That's not what this is about. This is the word pointing to the word to let you know that it is the fruit that you can judge. He ends with the good news is proclaimed to the poor. This doesn't mean only those who make under 20K a year or under 100K in the Bay Area. This means those who are poor in spirit and realize they need a savior and a Lord. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Oh my gosh, do I want to preach this for an hour. Okay, you read that and you think he is implying that hopefully he doesn't mess you up. That's what it looks like when you first read this. Anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is that we all stumble spiritually. Did you know that? None of us can come to God through our own wills or work. No one gets it. No one gets him. But blessed are those who receive him and you no longer stumble spiritually because he has made your path straight. 
He has done for you what you cannot do for yourself. King Jesus King intervenes and draws you to himself. And because of Jesus, the real Jesus, the one of the scriptures, the one we know from the word because he is the word, we have the opportunity to have redemption, reconciliation, restoration, salvation, and we are made into a new creation because of him.